though it's difficult to nail down which Pharaoh from history was the Pharaoh mentioned in the book of Exodus. There's a lot of debate about that. The events of that book of Exodus almost certainly took place during what historians and Egyptologists call the New Kingdom. The New Kingdom. That period lasted from 1550 B.C. all the way down to 1069 B.C. And it it included what are called the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties of Egypt. This new kingdom, as one source describes it, was Egypt's most prosperous time and marked the peak of its power. Most prosperity, greatest power in Egypt during this time. When you add to this fact that the Exodus took place during this time period, when you add to that fact that the Egyptians believed their Pharaoh was the earthly embodiment of the god Horus, then I think it's fair to say that the ruler of Egypt, also known as Pharaoh, during the life of Moses, that time period, He enjoyed unparalleled authority within his borders and the kingdom of Egypt itself regionally enjoyed unrivaled supremacy even beyond its borders. And talk about (laughs) well-established. Talk about well-established. When Moses was born, the famous pyramids of Giza, the ones that you know, those three famous pyramids, they were already 1,000 years old. When Moses was born. Without a doubt. It was a glorious time. To be Egyptian. But. As our recent readings. From the book of Exodus. Have made clear. It wasn't a glorious time. To be a Hebrew. Living in Egypt. Was it? It was not a glorious time. Welcomed as the family of Joseph. Over 400 years earlier. The descendants of Israel, another name for Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. The descendants of Israel had become slaves in Egypt. Listen to how Exodus chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 describes this awful development. Note the emphasis here. You'll see it here on the screen. It says this in Exodus chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. So they, that's the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service. Hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Even worse than this, Because the Egyptians, we know from, this is from Exodus chapter 1 as well. Even though, uh, sorry, because the Egyptians fear that the growing Hebrew population, especially the male population, would become numerous enough to pose a military threat and side with one of Egypt's enemies, this is what Pharaoh ordered. He ordered that all male Hebrew babies be killed. This is what Stephen, later in the New Testament, Stephen, when he's talking about the history of the, of the Jewish people, he says this. 
He says this about Pharaoh in Acts 7, 19. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so they would not be kept alive. Abandon those babies, leave them out to die. But as we'll see this morning in the words of Exodus 2, 25, and my friends, there are few sweeter words in scripture than this. Listen to this little phrase, Exodus 2.25. See what it says? God saw the people of Israel and God knew. He saw their suffering and he knew what was going on. He knew what was happening with them. Turn over to Exodus 7 if you're not already there. Look at verses 2 through 5. Again, this is from our daily reading plan as a church for those who are new to Way of Grace. We study through the scriptures. We read through the scriptures all year long together. We're all reading the same thing. It's what I preach from every Sunday. I take one of the passages from our weekly readings together, and we go in depth on Sundays. That reading plan is on the back counter, available for you if you'd like to grab that. So this past week, you all... We were reading in Exodus. One of the places we were reading was Exodus chapter 7. And this is what it says. Listen to how God instructs Moses about confronting Pharaoh. He says, you shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron, Aaron was kind of acting as the voice for Moses. He was the one stepping out and speaking. Your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But. This is what God says. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. All capital letters there, L-O-R-D. That simply represents the four Hebrew letters of the divine name Yahweh. And Yahweh simply means the always existing one, the one who always is. So this says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, when you consider those instructions... Right. When you consider those instructions in light of the original context, in light of what we talked about earlier, the power and the glory of Egypt here during the new kingdom period, consider what God is telling Moses and Aaron to do. Think about the power and glory of Pharaoh, the one that they're supposed to speak to in this way. When you think about that, these are stunning words, aren't they? You stand before this man, the most powerful in the whole region, right? In the known ancient world. You stand before him and you tell him this. You tell him this is what needs to happen. You tell him I said so. These are stunning words. But in light of the Hebrews' suffering and in light, in light of the Egyptians' ruthlessness, I believe that this passage and the whole Exodus account... The whole account communicates something so powerful and so encouraging. Are you ready for it? Here's what the whole story communicates to us. I hope that you take this away from the story. Take a look here on the screen. The biblical account of the Exodus 
confirms that no earthly or spiritual power is able to stop God from accomplishing his liberating purposes in the lives of his people. The biblical account of the Exodus confirms that no earthly, no spiritual power is able to stop God from accomplishing his liberating purposes in the lives of his people. That's what you should, I hope that you'll walk away from, as you're reading through this in your own time, as we're talking this morning, I hope you will walk away from that, and I hope that truth encourages you. It can, and it should encourage us, right? It absolutely should. Why should it encourage us? Because the God of the Exodus is God still today. He is our God because he's continuing to accomplish his liberating purposes. And he is just as unstoppable today as he was then. Does that encourage you? Man, I hope that it does. This God is still at work today, and he is just as unstoppable. Think about this. In so many cases, the New Testament invites us to experience what the Old Testament describes. In so many places, we can read what the Old Testament describes, and we, what's revealed there is something we can experience today. So ask yourself this. Do I believe the same God wants me to personally experience his liberating purposes today does he want that for your life i pray that you see that that is true i assure you that he does want that for you but we need to better understand those liberating purposes don't we we need to understand what that means that phrase means liberating purposes both in this context the the context of this ancient story but we also want to understand this in terms of how and why we can experience those today. And we're going to use God's word to do all of that. So let me share three aspects with you of those purposes. Three aspects I see right here in our main passage this morning. And we're going to draw in the context of the rest of this Exodus account in the opening, the first half of the book of Exodus. First of all, we read here about, take a look, Number one, we read about God defeating our enemies. God defeating our enemies. Though from an earthly perspective, Egypt was mighty. Though from an earthly perspective, Pharaoh was powerful. They were no match against Yahweh, were they? They were no match against the God of Israel since he was, in fact, the one true God And as our main passage makes clear, God was not entering into negotiations here with Pharaoh. (laughs) That was never the plan. He wasn't coming to negotiate with Pharaoh. This was not about carefully applying pressure in the right ways in the hope that Pharaoh would somehow relent. God's plan from the very beginning, from the outset, was to bring Egypt to its knees. He says it clearly from the very beginning. Defeat, not diplomacy. Defeat, not diplomacy was always going to be the outcome here. And did you notice how Yahweh's power and his authority in this passage and in in, in, in this whole account, look at how they're made clear on two fronts. Verse 3, look back at the text. 
chapter 7, verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And verses 4 through 5. This is where God speaks about his great acts of judgment and about stretching out his hand against Egypt. These great acts of judgment were, of course, the ten famous plagues that begin in this chapter. Look down at chapter, look down at verse 14 of this same chapter, chapter 7. That's where these plagues begin, and they continue all the way through Exodus chapter 12. So, think about that. Neither the heart, nor the heavens, neither the land, or the one ruling over that land was beyond. None of these things was beyond the scope of God's awesome power and unrivaled authority. Every one of them. Either the human heart or the heavens above had to bow in submission to God's will. God was going to accomplish his purposes. And Egypt, of course, was brought to its knees. It was defeated, decisively defeated. So this was the first step in God's liberating purposes. God defeating our enemies, the enemies of his people. Today, if you belong to Jesus Christ by faith. Right? If you've embraced him as Lord and Savior, as Redeemer and King, if you belong to him by his grace through faith, then you have experienced and you will experience his liberating purposes in this same way. What do I mean? I mean that God has defeated even greater enemies on your behalf, believer. God has defeated even greater enemies than this on your behalf. Far greater enemies than the king or the armies of Egypt. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about this victory that God has accomplished. This is what he wrote about the resurrection of Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57. When the perishable, writes Paul, the perishable, these bodies that we have now, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, a glorified body in the future that will never perish, that won't die, that won't decay, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But, guess what? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Far greater. The future defeat of death is made sure by the past reality of Christ's victory over the grave. That's what we read here. Like we said, far greater than the armies of Egypt, the Pharaoh who ruled over the land, as mighty as he was, as mighty as they were, death is an even greater foe, right? Every generation, every person, unstoppable. You and I can't stop it ourselves. We can't stop death. We can't defeat it ourselves. We can't sin. We can't stop the sin that leads to death we can't fix it ourselves we can't escape it ourselves we can't morally reform ourselves out of our condition of sin can we we can't make ourselves stop sinning we can't change our hearts but notice how the passage connects death to sin and sin to the law but the 
we know from the rest of Scripture, if we had time, we'd dig into it more, but we don't. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has broken the power of sin and death. Right? We're going to sing about that, I think, coming up. It's one of the lines in one of our songs this morning about breaking the power of sin and death. Therefore, in light of God's defeat of death and sin through Jesus, rest assured, brother, right? Rest assured, sister, that there is no enemy in your life that God cannot defeat. There is no, there is no threat God cannot neutralize. There is no shadow that God cannot dispel. There is no burden that he cannot lift. How and when we experience his liberating purposes may not always line up with our expectations. But if he has defeated our greatest enemies, then we can be sure of this. We can be sure that there is nothing else in this life that can be victorious over us in any way that truly threatens God's liberating purposes. You believe that? You might suffer defeats in your life. You might feel weighed down and crushed. But you can know because of the victory of God through Jesus that there is nothing, no defeat, no burden, no shadow cast over your life that can ever separate you from his liberating purposes in your life. He will accomplish what he sets out to do. Amen? We can draw great assurance from that victory that God has defeated our most formidable enemies. Is the God of the Exodus your God? Is he your God this morning? Now, God's victory leads us into another aspect of God's liberating purposes. It it should come as no surprise that this passage is also about, take a look, number two, God rescuing us from slavery. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? We know that that's what, what happens here during the Exodus. God is clear. Take a look at verse 4 of chapter 7 of Exodus if you're still there. God is clear about the outcome of his victory in verse 4. I will bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. Or take a look at verse 5 again. I will bring out the people of Israel from among them. And God did exactly that. He promised this way back in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Take a look. He says, Exodus 6, 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Do you hear any hesitation in God's voice there? Do you hear any uncertainty in God's voice? No. He's clear, isn't he? He is going to accomplish this. And it was fulfilled when we look down at Exodus chapter 12, verses 40 through 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of that 430 years, on that very day... I think that means that on the same day that they arrived 430 years earlier, it was that same exact anniversary that God said, you're, you're set free. You're leaving. 
talk about a reminder of the sovereignty and power of God. That when he decreed it, it will come to pass. We can be sure that we can hold that as reassurance and comfort in our hearts. At the end of that very, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. This is what God did, friends, and this is what God does for his people. He sets them free. Doesn't he? He is a God of liberation, of emancipation. He is a God of deliverance. He sets his people free. Freedom has always been God's purpose, his plan. We see that here. There are no exceptions to this freedom. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. Take a look. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. See, there's an important reminder there. Did you see that? A very important reminder. God's liberation, when we talk about that, is not simply to rescue us from bondage. It's also to rescue us for, not just from, but for a new life, savoring God and serving God. We're saved from slavery for service. We're we're saved to serve God because that's what true freedom is. It it does mean, right, to, to be clear, this doesn't mean our struggle with sin is over when we are delivered from sin. Let me, let me back up a minute. This is an important reminder for us, right? We're saved for a new life. We see that in the Exodus account, don't we? Where did God lead the people after they left Egypt? He led them into the desert and he led them to Mount Sinai, right? Also called Horeb in chapter three, Mount Horeb. He led them there and what did he do? He revealed himself to them, right? He made a covenant with them. He told them how they should live as his people. All right? he, he did this very thing. He saved them from slavery, but he saved them for service as his people. That was what we see in Exodus. It's the same as true for us. It was the end of bondage, but it was also the beginning of a new and wonderful life. Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, For freedom, Christ has set us free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. What is true freedom? This is where our culture gets it wrong. What is true freedom? True freedom is not you as a creature doing what you want. True, cre- true, true freedom it's, is you doing what your creator wants, right? That's true freedom, to do what your creator wants. To live in the will of God is true freedom. Are you experiencing the liberating purposes of God in this very way? Say from slavery, say for true freedom and service of God. To know Him, to love Him. Like I said, this doesn't mean our struggle with sin is over when we enjoy this freedom. But it does mean that a new freedom from sin is possible because we have a new heart to love and obey God. That's what God does in us. You see, even in your struggle, God will be victorious. 
as you struggle with sin and self, even in that, God will be victorious. We know this from the word. Jude prayed to him. Take a look at the screen here. Jude prayed to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Our God is able to do that. And guess what? He's not just able to do that as you struggle, as I struggle with sin and self in this life. And we go through our ups and downs. God is not only able to do that and have victory in our lives and through our lives in that way. He's also going to do that. He's not just able. He's going to do that. How do I know that? Well, look at how Paul expands on the reassurance that Jude gave us. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. Now, may the God of peace himself, says Paul, sanctify you, set you apart completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same prayer that Jude was praying. But Paul adds this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. It will happen. As Paul put it to the Philippians, he who began a good work in you will complete it for the day of Christ Jesus. Again, victory. Victory that we can rest in. Brothers and sisters, those are the liberating purposes of God. And no earthly or spiritual power is able to stop our God from accomplishing his liberating purposes in your life. That's probably the point where you say hallelujah or amen or something, right? Yeah, something like that. I'm just kind of giving you some ideas here. I'll just throw it out there, sprinkle it, and you guys do what you want to with it. Nothing can stop God in this way. His victory here in Egypt points us to that very fact. What a powerful reminder. What powerful reassurance we have in this text. The liberation of the Hebrew slaves points us to this. The covenant with Israel points us to this. For as it says in Romans 15 verse 4, take a look. Why are we talking about the Old Testament in this way? Look what Paul says in Romans 15 4. For whatever, what, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, right? Whatever's in the Old Testament is written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And wow, what a hope-inspiring truth that our God is the God of the Exodus. Our God is the one who defeats enemies and rescues us from slavery. That is our God. But there's one aspect that we can't miss in this passage. We should not miss. This Exodus account is also about number three. Number three, God revealing his glory. Did you see that? Did you pick up on that? Maybe as you were reading through uh, the chapters in your Bible reading plan, the the schedule, you picked up on this, this emphasis. In chapter 14, take a look on the screen. In chapter 14, this is God's final confrontation with Pharaoh. This is his his ultimate purposes here are revealed in regard to Pharaoh. And he says this, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. That was the purpose, right? That was the reason. That is the purpose that Pharaoh served 
in terms of the judgment of God. He was judged, and that judgment, in that judgment, he would be used to showcase the unrivaled glory of God. You thought Egypt was, was full of splendor and glory. You thought the Egyptians were powerful and to be feared. People were in awe of their armies. People were in awe of, the, awe of their pyramids and their architecture and all of these great glorious things. The jewels, the gold, everything that we still gawk over today in museums, all of that. Yahweh says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all of his hosts. I will show that they are nothing when they stand before me, when they stand against me. But that's just part of the story here, brothers and sisters. Concerning the 10th plague, the final plague, God declares this in chapter 12, verse 12. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Not just Pharaoh. Not just the armies of Egypt. Every god that the Egyptians worshipped would be shown to be futile, a fraud, powerless, impotent, unable to stand against the God of the Hebrews, the one true God. But there's more. There's more. Just before the eighth plague, God tells Moses, he says this, go into Pharaoh, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am Yahweh. Did you detect a common theme there? Did you detect common language, common formula? The ultimate aim in every single aspect of the Exodus is that Yahweh would get the glory as Lord over all things. That's what he did. You see, that's God's ultimate end in all things is that he would receive glory, that he would be glorified, that we would see him and know him for who he truly is, the source, the power the greatness, the majesty, the dominion. It all belongs to him. Amen. Amen. Yahweh would get the glory in all things. Why 10 plagues? Why was it 10? Was it because Pharaoh was stubborn? Well, he was stubborn. That's, that's clear from the text. It talks about him hardening his heart against them and trying to figure out lots of ways and telling them lies to get them sent a, a certain way. No, no, he was stubborn. That's clear. But that's not the reason there were 10 plagues. That's not the reason there was an increasingly, there was an increasingly severe plagues in this series of plagues. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were not being tested. They were not being tested to see whether or not they would be judged. They were already judged. They were already judged even before Moses stepped foot back in Egypt. They were already judged. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was evidence of God's judgment. It was the outworking of God's judgment that he hardened his heart, gave him no way out. He was locked in. He would serve God's purposes. That was part of the judgment of God. He was locked in. And the ten plagues that followed were foreordained. God had planned these ten plagues. Why? Because God was just to judge a wicked nation like this and their wicked leaders. 
That's one reason he did this. He judged them in this way, and they deserved it. But also so that, chapter 7, verse 3, take a look at verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3, so that God might multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And what awe-inspiring wonders they were. Can you just imagine beholding these things as they were let loose on Egypt? Can you imagine being in the midst of this? How powerful, how scary, how disturbing, how awe-inspiring it would be to see these frogs, these, this Nile turned to blood, these gnats, the death of the livestock, the darkness, supernatural darkness, the death of every firstborn. Scary. Awesome, right? Awesome in a, in a way in terms of inspiring reverence in us. That's what God was doing. The Egyptian magicians were frustrated, weren't they? The taskmasters were put out of jobs. The Pharaoh was brought to his needs. And the gods of Egypt, gods of water and field, gods of animal and sky were shown to be helpless Brothers and sisters, what an incredible reminder that the highest purpose among God's liberating purposes is to get glory in all things. Right? He gets glory in all things as he shows himself to be incomparably glorious. That's the highest purpose in his liberating purposes. Did you know that's just as true in your rescue? Think about it. Though the Egyptian plagues and the suffering, though the Egyptian plagues and the suffering at Golgotha have supernatural darkness in common, that's kind of one of the things they share, supernatural darkness, the wonders of the Exodus simply cannot compare to the glory of God revealed at the cross of Christ. They don't compare. Right, they might, look, they might look great on a screen, right? Ten Commandments, Prince of Egypt. You're like, well, this is, wow, this is amazing. Right? Look at the computer graphics. This is stunning. This is awe-inspiring. They may look great on a screen, these, these wonders in Egypt, these signs, these judgments against the Egyptians, but they cannot compare to the glory of God revealed at the cross of Christ. Remember what Paul said about God's work at the cross. He said this in 2 Corinthians 5. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He's talking about the cross. Not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what God was doing in Christ at the cross. You see, the greatest act of judgment from God was not in Egypt. It was at Golgotha. Your deliverance was accomplished through a great act of judgment, the greatest. But Jesus was being judged for your sin, for my sin. We can stand back and look at the Egyptians and say, oh, awful, ruthless, harsh, unyielding, stubborn. 
unbelieving? Ugh, awful. But friends, the greatest act of judgment was based at your sin and my sin. It was directed at my sin and your sin. It took place there on the cross and God revealed his glory. Again, what victory could compare to that victory of Jesus? What liberation, what emancipation could compare to the freedom that God secured in that exodus? And for it, God gets all the glory. All of it. And when we recognize that God gets all the glory, that's liberating for us. Do you understand? When you recognize that God gets all the glory, he deserves all the glory, that is liberating for you. Without that recognition, you are not fully experiencing the liberating purposes of God in your life when you don't recognize that. Why is that true? Because if you do not recognize that, you must still believe that some part of your salvation is up to you. And that tempts you, doesn't it? It tempts you to work in your own strength rather than to rest in the finished work of Christ. For when we rest in Christ, we are most fruitful for Christ. I'm not talking about passivity, am I? To rest in the finished work of Christ is not passivity. It leads to activity for the glory of God. Right? We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works because we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus and we work out what's been worked into us. Right? Work out with fear and trembling. Right? Your salvation, he says in Philippians chapter 2. This is the picture that we have here, but we have to begin with true, the true life-giving sap that comes from the vine to branches like us that to bear fruit for God. It has to come from that recognition, first of all, that God gets all the glory because he alone saves, right? Salvation belongs to Yahweh. It's his work. We bring nothing to the transaction except the sins for which we need forgiveness. This is where we start, the liberating purposes of God with his glory. What should you take from reading this account of the Exodus. We've just got a little bit of a, a kind of a snapshot of it this morning. There's so much there. I pray that you've been encouraged by what you've read so far and what you're going to read this week. But what should you take from reading this passage is great encouragement. I pray that you take great encouragement from this passage. Why should you take great encouragement? Because you have there one of the very best confirmations in this account, in this story, you have one of the very best confirmations in all of human history that there is no earthly or spiritual power able to stop God from accomplishing his liberating purposes in the lives of his people. You cannot stop him. So if you have embraced the wonder of the cross and the empty tomb, if you have received the rescue of Jesus, then no matter what enemy, no matter what power, no matter what danger or uncertainty or burden or opposition or struggle you are facing, be reassured this, this morning, right here, right now, be reassured that you serve an unstoppable God. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me?